stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest writer, Sarah Manguso, is the author of two books of poetry, one short story collection, and most recently two memoirs, The Two Kinds of Decay and The Guardians, an elegy for a friend. The Two Kinds of Decay was named an editor's choice by the New York Times and a best book of the year by The Independent, Telegraph, and The San Francisco Chronicle, among others. And The Guardians was also named a Best Book of the Year by The Telegraph and a Top Ten Book of the Year by Salon. Sarah Manguso's essays have appeared in Harper's The New York Review of Books and The New York Times Magazine. Her poems have appeared in four editions of the Best American Poetry series. And Sarah Manguso is also the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship and the Rome Prize, a graduate of Harvard and the Iowa Writers Workshop. And she's here today on Between the Covers to talk about her latest memoir, Ongoingness, The End of a Diary, a book about which writer and performance artist Miranda July says, I can't think of a writer who is at once so formally daring and so rigorously uncompromising as Sarah Manguso. Ongoingness is an incredibly elegant, wise book. Welcome to Between the Covers, Sarah Manguso. Thank you. So... Ongoingness is about the diary you've kept for 25 years that is now, I believe, over 800,000 words long. You've described diary writing for you not as a discipline, not as a salutary, virtuous act, but as uh, more of a compulsion and a vice. Can, can, you, can you tell us uh, what was compelling and what was compelling you to, to write a diary? Sure. Um, it, it was around 1988, and I had this sort of threshold experience. I went to an art opening, and very little happened, but in, internally I was never the same. And so when I got home, I found myself just writing this voluminous essay about what had happened to me that day. And as I was writing it, I realized that this was probably going to have to become a daily ritual, just putting experience into prose was a great, great relief. Um, and as the, the word vice, um, that sort of bubbled up to the top of a lot of conversations I've had with readers of this book. It's not so much, it's not so much that I considered my diary keeping a vice, but I just wanted to underscore that it was in no way a virtuous, disciplined, um, obligated activity for me. It was just an automatic thing. And the diary became interesting to me after it became so unmanageably long. Uh, it was really fascinating to 
hear the different ways you explored the role that the diary played for you before it changed in character for you in your life. And, and so, several of these roles seem to be um, provocatively contradictory. So for instance, there's the desire to write something down so you could forget it as, as one of the roles. And then another, um, writing to make sure you didn't miss something in life. So it feels like, on the one hand, uh, recording so you don't have to think about it, and also recording to uh, capture it at the same time. C- can you talk more about those those impulses? Sure. Well, I found that writing something down gave me a feeling that I had co- somehow completed the experience. And without writing anything down, I was not only plagued by the feeling that I had to remember it until the experience was over, um, but also a feeling that there there was so much that seemed like almost nothing that the, you know, if I was going to commit myself to the practice of writing things down in order to functionally escape from them, I was going to have to start paying attention to all of the minutes that didn't contain life-changing moments. Hmm. And when you uh, pay attention to all these these minutes, both to capture them, and it's in a way it seems like also to relieve yourself of having to remember them in a weird way by putting them in the book. Can you can you tell us more about some of the explorations you did around memory and 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 your diary? Sure. Well, I was teaching writing at the time, and I found myself wanting to sort of sneak in my practice into my curricula. So um, I think the first time I did this was when I was teaching undergrads at, uh, at Pratt at an art school. And so I had them sit for 20 minutes. I had them come into the classroom, sit down, and I didn't say anything to them, and they were, they were, you know, they were wonderful, very receptive. They were art school students. And after the 20 minutes were over, I had them write five sentences, as long as they wanted, about the almost nothing that had just happened. And then I would run to the photocopy room, and then we would immediately read and study and analyze this nothing that had almost happened. And later on in other other undergraduate and graduate writing programs, I got up to 40 minutes, and the students were always receptive, and it was always a kind of unwittingly um, revelatory experience for me. It was just always fascinating to see somebody else's analysis of time that might seem empty, but that after a bit of application is just always so full and so differently full for each person at the table. Hmm. That makes me think a little bit of your your last memoir, The Guardians, about your friend Harris who, who committed suicide. What drives that memoir, it seems, is those 10 hours of hmm. that no one knows what he was doing prior to the moment he, he dies. Is that somehow, do you think, related to that nothingness, like going into this this area that you can't recollect? Um, it, that probably does have some relation to what I was doing in this new book. I usually leave it to, uh, you know, committed and alert readers to tell me of these connections, but yeah. that's not something I had considered before. Huh. Well, what what moved you to not only write your diary, but then to decide to write about writing mm-hmm. your diary? What, 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 how did that become a project? Well, at at some point, it became I it, it became my primary existential problem that I had to keep writing the diary because it was 
functionally useful in that it kept me from sort of ruminating forever on the events of a day. But just in, in sheer volume and in the strength of the compulsion, it just it became a rather primary part of my daily life. And um, as such, I thought I would kind of get into it by writing a book about graphomania. So originally, I conceived of the book as a kind of history of the path of physiology and, you know, patient histories. Inter you know, there are so many interesting patient histories. Could you, tell, you, could you tell our listeners oh, what sure. graphomania is? Oh, sure. Graphomania is just the, um, the, the compulsive urge to write. Well, Samuel Pepys is sort of raised as somebody who compiled a voluminous diary, but I think it was only about um, between one and five million words. The longest diary on record, though it hasn't been subjected to an exact word count yet, I believe was kept by a clergyman in Washington State named Robert W. Shields. And he kind of infamously logged his activities every 15 minutes while he was awake and every two hours at night while he was sleeping so he could record his dreams. Mm. I did not have <laughs> such uh, a, a strong compulsion, but I did want to write a book about it. The book that uh, eventually came out of that work has almost nothing to do with that original vision I had, though. Hmm. So in ongoingness, we learn that when you become pregnant, you start to have memory issues. Mm -hmm. Is that what prompts the book to become what it has become versus a book that looks at historical figures of, of graphomania? I see that now as sort of the, the first domino falling in the long line. But uh, the diary did change fairly early on in my pregnancy when I found that my working memory was no longer as um, capacious or as quick as it had been before. And I, you know, was, of course, exhausted and furious. Um, I, you know, I know everybody sort of expects that pregnancy might cause fatigue, but the fact that it was causing memory fatigue just almost drove me out of my mind because I could no longer write as I had written for decades. And so I... You know, and I, I endured I endured it as well as I could, and I, I I logged the events of the days, but they were not as broad or as deep as they had been up to that year. That was uh, 2011, and then after I gave birth to my son, something else happened to my memory. That was an another completely unanticipated change, and. That was the very sudden and um, frequent welling up of what appeared to me as completely accurate and very detailed sensory memories of my pre-verbal life. Ones that you don't remember recollecting previously. Yes, I love the way you put that. I don't remember recollecting them previously. <laughs> yeah, that's fascinating. So you're experiencing on one level, a sort of amnesia, and another level, a, a dredging up of something that was inaccessible before. Absolutely. Huh. That's fascinating. And I love a lot of the paradoxes and ongoingness. Like you talk about um, every time that we 
call up a memory, it degrades. Yes. Uh, could you talk a little bit about what that means? Well, how, I, how we're losing memories as we're remembering them? Yeah, sure. Well, I have only a layman's understanding of this, um, which was translated to me mainly in a book on memory science by Charles Ferniehow. But as I understand it, um, a memory is not a little bit of uh, physiological stuff in, in the head. Um, it's very tempting to think of long-term memory as a kind of file cabinet, but really what happens to a memory physiologically is that the emotional component of it goes somewhere in the brain, and then if there are words spoken, the um, summary of those words goes to another part of the brain, which is why sometimes when we're recollecting lines of dialogue from something, we'll come up with synonyms for certain words, although the general gist of it is the same. And when recollecting something, these sort of this scattered assortment of bits coheres, and then when it goes back down into the long term, you know, after working memory, what we used to call short term memory, uses uses the memory as long as the, you know, physiology deems necessary. And then, as I understand it, it might separate and 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 be logged in a completely different way from before. Mm -hmm. So, the idea of a memory as this hardened template or a stone tablet is just really inaccurate. Mm -hmm. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to writer Sarah Manguso about her latest autobiography, Ongoingness, The End of a Diary. So in Ongoingness, we learn that when you become a mother, you not only have a, a shift in your relationship to memory, but you also have a larger shift in relationship to time. Can, can, can you speak a little bit to what happens to you? Yes, sure. Well, where I, before I was a mother, I observed myself in time as if I were this object and time were this sort of solvent in which I dissolved or floated. But after I was a mother, that relationship, um, at least that, that model for the relationship to time changed a lot. There's a short passage in the book about nursing that I, could I read that yeah, now? Yeah, of course. It, um, this is about halfway through the book. Nursing an infant creates so much lost, empty time. Of the baby's nighttime feeds, I remember nothing. Of his daytime feeds, I remember almost nothing. It was a different nothing from the unrecorded nothing of the years before. This new nothing was absent of subjective experience. I was either asleep or almost asleep at all times. Day and night consisted of the input and output of milk, often in an emergency, but the emergencies all resembled each other. At dawn, I noticed a pile of tiny damp blankets and tiny damp clothes on the nursery floor, but I never remembered replacing the green shirt with the yellow one. In my experience, nursing is waiting. The mother becomes the background against which the baby lives, becomes time. I used to exist against the continuity of time. Then I became the baby's continuity, a background of ongoing time for him to live against. I was the warmth and milk that was always there for him, the agent of comfort that was always there for him. My body, my life, became the landscape of my son's life. 
I am no longer merely a thing living in the world. I am a world. Is that what you mean by ongoingness? Or is that ongoingness for your son, what you're presenting for him? Oh, well, I, I don't think I would define ongoingness in a single way. As I was writing about graphomania, I was also thinking about the problem that I, I realized I would have to account for, which was that I was 40 years old and I was writing my third memoir with an intent to publish it. And I was thinking about graphomania as, as a general problem, but I was also thinking about uh, the slightly more specific problem that I had with my diary, which is that an autobiographer has to both perceive and document an autobiographer should be able to write about ongoing time while contained in it. Mm. And that to me seemed the essential problem, not just of my diary, but of self-documentation in general. And I kept coming back to that problem of time's ongoingness. Um, at one point in the book, I say that as a diarist and as a human, today isn't the problem, tomorrow's the problem. There should be buffer days between today and tomorrow and the next day. Then I could, then I would be, I would do fine. Mm. I would be able to perceive and document and then perceive the next thing and document the next thing. But of course, that's not the way it works. But it almost feels like there was a sense of relief in the part that you read about nursing, that you're, that some of that ongoingness is stopping. Yes, absolutely. That problem that I just described was very much the problem that I felt as I was living through the first half of the book. Mm. After I had my son, that was when my relationship to ongoing time radically changed. I know I'm reading into ongoingness when, when I hear you read the section about nursing and when I read it originally, and you say the mother becomes the background against which the baby lives becomes time. It made me think of or wonder whether that's what you were trying to get and create with the diary itself prior to being a mother. Like almost like the diary was going to be the backdrop, the time hmm. for you. Well, I had no conscious recognition of this if it were in fact true, but I I couldn't necessarily deny it either. One of the one of the things that was super interesting for me in doing research for the interview today, Sarah, was that and re was reading interviews and conversations that you had prior to becoming a mother, and particularly one you had with Rachel Zucker, uh, an ongoing correspondence that was very uh, intense and prickly, mm -hmm. but very respectful at the same time. And, and she was, at the time, a mother of, of three kids and, I believe, a home birth mm -hmm. advocate, and you, you were a, not a mom yet. And a lot of the discussion started around whether each of you considered yourselves uh, a writer or a woman writer. And that went into a lot of the uh, ways in which you had uh, presuppositions about each other's lives that were pretty charged. And I'm curious if you've looked at that interview since then and, and what you think of it. Oh, I love that interview. Um, we were both, well, I think we were both equally all in in trying to come to some common ground. Um, and I was just interested in seeing if I could, if I could have a conversation with a mother and to 
to see whether I could elicit the things that I feared and 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 presumed mothers thought about non-mothers because of course mothers have the omniscient perspective they've been non-mothers and 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 also mothers whereas I you know my position in that conversation was of the sort of you know the the new kid and um, I love that conversation. Uh, it turned out to be incredibly useful. Um, and I think, th- for me, th- the, the, the crux of it, or really the, the climax of our talk, came at the point at which Rachel said, well, I would not die for my husband, but I would die for my children. Mm. And I thought, oh, I don't have that feeling about anything or anyone. And that might be the essential difference. Of course, it's impossible to generalize, but she was a mother that I knew. And um, it, that, was, that was very useful to me in just thinking about her subject position and the subject position of mothers from my own as a non-mother. And have you seen any ways in which your position has shifted becoming a mother, looking back at that interview? For yes, instance, do you definitely. still feel, I know that you had this discussion about how you were invited to be in, a, in an all-woman's anthology, mm-hmm. and similar to something that Elizabeth Bishop also did, you you didn't want to be included in an anthology that was, that was purely a gender-based anthology. So um, does that still feel like something that you feel strongly about? I definitely feel different. I I feel different. It's hard to know what I would what I would say if I had received that exact invitation now. Um, before I was a mother, I pretended, or I really did feel that I was writing from a default, sexless, genderless position, and I now see that that was. A, a beautiful dream. It was. It was not the way that my work was read. As a mother now, it's impossible for me to write not also as a female person. Um, it's not so much that I'm writing as a mother, but being a mother has caused me to just have a, a, a more precise awareness of my femaleness as I write. Another part of the interview with Rachel Zucker that strikes me very differently now from the way that it did at the time was her quoting of, I believe it's Anne Truitt at the end of the review. Um, Truitt had a line about saying, well, I, I didn't want to get to the end of my life unbroken. And before I was a mother, I heard that line and I just thought, well, that's just that's just self-destructive. I mean, the whole point is to try to keep things together and stay healthy and not die. Um, I had been through a, a long and even now ongoing period of chronic illness, and so wanting to be shattered in the way that motherhood shatters both literally and figuratively seemed to me a very a very silly thing that was just part of the privilege of healthy people. Now I see it absolutely in the opposite way. Mm-hmm. I think it is actually very um, a, just a, a deepening of my human experience to have, in the words of Louis C.K., gone into the hospital as one person and come out as two separate things. 
Yeah, that's fascinating. And, and you mentioned your your ongoing chronic illness, your autoimmune disease that you write about in The Two Kinds of Decay. And one thing that was really interesting about comparing ongoingness and The Two Kinds of Decay is The Two Kinds of Decay feels very uh, physical and visceral and very focused on your body and what is what your body has to go through in in recovering from w- your hospitalization at the time. And ongoingness, you make the choice not to include any of the actual diary that you're writing about in the book. So if I imagine the diary as the body, mm. in a way that the body is inferred in, in ongoingness and, and the body is very um, tangible in the two kinds of decay. Does that seem like a, a... Yeah, that seems like a great characterization of the difference between those two books. Can, can you tell us about... You do talk about the choice in the afterward of, of why you decided to not include any of the diary in the writing of a book about the diary. While I started writing what I believed would be maybe a 350-page research nonfiction book, a little science, a little history, a little poetry... You know, that sort of book. During revision, it kept getting shorter and shorter. Um, While I was revising it myself, and then later on while I was working with my editor at Grey Wolf. And I saw it, I saw the form wanting to become this very smooth, almost textureless stone. And I, I was working towards this small, perfectible piece of prose. And so the proper nouns had to come out and, you know, all sorts of things had to come out. And it was relatively late in the process um, that I finally made the decision that I would not excerpt the diary. I would say the primary reason for my not putting it in is that it's just, it's too big for me to control. And it just would have been a decision that went against all of the work that I had done up to that point. And trying to keep it small and keep to, to keep the prose under perfect control or as mm. as 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 good a sense of control as I could could wage. If you just tuned in, we're talking today to writer Sarah Manguso about her latest memoir, Ongoingness, the End of a Diary. Well you mentioned wanting to move towards a shorter form and, and in the book you also talk about independent of, of pregnancy, the diary does become more concise. There are less words that happen each year and there's and it moves from the past tense to the present tense as well as other other things that that happen the dropping of pronouns it made me wonder if part of your attraction to interviewing Lydia Davis for instance when you did in the believer was this move towards concision and and compression well I'm I've I'm definitely just um I'm now only interested in in writing short but I didn't really begin as a you know an an eight hundred page uh, novel writer. Right. I mean, I st- I started out short. I've always been interested in compression, um, and now it I think constitutes virtually my entire poetics, if you if if I can use that word. And Lydia Davis's work is of course wonderful and now universally and correctly acclaimed. But at the time, I just I just, I loved that she got away with making such short texts. That interview with the Believer was very instructive for me, and the 
the interview that I did before that for the same magazine was with Amy Hempel, mm. who has also um, been accused of sort of trying to trying to use short forms as a as a provocation or or as um, a quirk, whereas it just seemed to me that these were necessarily short forms. I really loved the part in that interview. Well, I love the idea that Lydia Davis was inclined to translate Proust, mm-hmm. for, first of all, given how long his sentences are and how many nested clauses they have. But I loved when she talked about how uh, Proust uh, believed his sentences were economical and that she agreed. Well, if you compare her translation with the Scott Moncrief, you'll see that it's a completely different Proust. Yeah. A just kind of shockingly different Proust. Right. I mean, it no longer seems like this sort of puffy vestige of the 19th century with all those nested clauses. Hmm. Um, yeah, that was that was an eye-opener for me, for sure. Well, there's sort of a... A misleading aspect to the title of the book in the sense that it says the ongoing is the end of a diary and you are indeed still I believe still writing your diary can you can you talk a little bit about what happens with your diary diary writing now well I I will share that the other subtitle that we had been considering was the end of beginnings and endings but in the end I think we correctly chose the one with the word diary so we could have a concrete noun in this on the cover of the book but you're right. It isn't. It isn't about my my uh, arresting all diary keeping. What the end is in that end of a diary, though, is the end of my particular compulsion to need to record everything, so that I could jettison this feeling that if I if I didn't document everything that had happened. I was not living responsibly. So there was this very heavy moral um, project that that was intrinsic to the diary keeping for the first, I would say, decade that I was keeping it. And then it, it became a relatively automatic or compulsive practice. And then in 2012, when I had my son, it started to change a lot. And uh, uh, I, I made my most recent ent- entry on the plane here from Los Angeles. I wrote it on my, or I, you know, tapped it out with one finger on my smartphone. And uh, and then I, um, before I came here to the radio station, I put it on the the, my, you know, I put it into my Microsoft Word file and revised it maybe six or seven times. And then mm-hmm. I came over here, but it's. It's now uh, an experience that just brings me pleasure. I mean, it's 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 pleasurable. It's fun. It's it's I guess the way that some people like to make watercolors or or um, you know uh, elaborate baked goods. I like to make prose, mm. and I don't. And so, insofar as I'm still keeping the diary, yes, it is a diary, and it it has the same name, and uh, it it is a daily document, but. It doesn't. It no longer arises from this this terrible, um, morbid uh, fear that uh, my life would be affected if I didn't go on keeping it. Are you attracted to diaries of other writers? Do you, or diary-like books? Like I think of the Year of Magical Thinking by Joan Didion, which isn't really a diary, but 
sort of is a diary. Well, it's sort of a memoir taking place in the present moment. So, yeah, no, I, I hear what you're saying. I do like those books, um, but more than I like writers' actual diaries, I like the idea of a writer's diary as this sort of secret piece of perfect prose, you know, the unintended for publication perfect prose or the the real secret, the, the portrait of Dorian Gray and the, you know, the, not mm. the book, but the actual portrait. I started reading Virginia Woolf's diary finally, um, this morning, and uh, I could tell right away, though, that she didn't revise it as as um, deeply or as consciously as she revised the prose in her books. And so, I mean, I love the idea that maybe there's a secret, even more, even more uh, secret and private diary that she kept and that she polished and revised, and that we might find it someday. But for now, I prefer her actual novels hmm. and essays. And what about books that are writing about writing. I, I really liked what Leslie Jameson, her exploration of, of ongoingness in the Atlantic when she is talking about how, well, she's looking more generally at confessional memoirs and, and how a memoir like yours that is looking at the writing about the writing of a diary and also about sort of this paradox that you're writing about how motherhood took you away from writing. Do you like books that that do that sort of doubling and have that sort of distance? Oh, yeah, I love them. Well, I loved Leslie's piece. That was incredibly smart, I think, to pair this somewhat somber work of philosophy with David Shields's um, book with Caleb Powell. I think you're totally wrong. Um, but books books about the books themselves are, they can be very funny. I think usually they are. Well, Jeff Dyer's book, Out of Sheer Rage, is probably... Mm-hmm probably the one that um that that does it the best and 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 the fu- and is the funniest that's his dh lawrence that's his dh lawrence book yeah and um david shields has said that it's essentially a book about whether or not to commit suicide which is is also somehow funny uh, i don't know i i think if i had attempted the same book it would not have been that funny i need to be funnier that reminds me of uh, Thomas Bernard's oh, yeah. book about trying to start writing, and he never... I don't know if he starts in it. I can't remember the name of the Yes, the which, you know, I actually wrote about that Bernard book for Book Forum, oh. um, but his books sort of run together in my memory now. <laughs> and also are one long block, <laughs> yeah, one that, block I guess that, on the page. that doesn't help <laughs> distinguish among them. Well, tell us about... The, this label of memoir. Obviously, Leslie Jameson looks at your book and wants to differentiate it from another very large category of, of popular memoir today. Do you feel comfortable having that as a name for, for what you're doing? You know, I, I always, I'm, I'm always asked very thoughtful questions about nomenclature, what we should call types of writing or individual books. And uh, I I, I'm I'm fairly argumentative generally. I mean, I like I like to make sure my point is precise, but for some reason, my eyes just glaze over, and I I never really care. I never feel that I actually have skin in the game. Mm. You can, uh, you know, I, I would describe ongoingness as uh, a work of prose, as an as an essay, but to further categorize it, it it just seems like somebody else's job, and I'm I'm happy to leave it to others. So there's not a lot of concern on your part whether it says 
autobiography or memoir. Nah, those are marketing terms. Those are marketing decisions, and believe me, uh, I'm not the person to (laughs) ask about those. Are there any that are particular ones that jump out to you that you love in in the genre? Oh, of autobiography? Mm -hmm. Oh, my goodness, yes. Um, uh, How to limit it? Well, the most recent contemporary one that I liked, let's say, mm-hmm. um, was Sarah Rule's essay collection, 100 Essays I Don't Have Time to Write. This is also one of the few books that's kind of cryptically about motherhood um, that I found very useful for me in, in, in thinking about it, just, th- just thinking about what had happened. Um, I, I found myself fairly um, stymied every time I picked up books about motherhood that I thought would be thought-provoking and helpful to me. Um, I was almost always wrong, but that one I found to be absolutely terrific. Mm. You, you have this quote, those who claim to write about something larger and more significant than the self sometimes fail to comprehend the dimensions of a self, which would make me think that uh, one of the prerequisites for a good memoir is not how exciting or eventful your life has been? Oh, God, no, no. It's the quality of the mind. Um, I, 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 and on top of that, I just seem to have a taste for books that are about almost nothing. Hmm. So uh, what are you working on now? I'm working on uh, a book called 300 Arguments, which is a collection of extremely short essays. And do the essays cohere around a, a specific Uh, enterprise? They do. Uh, At the moment, there are seven sections, and this might change, but for now, they're self, others, desire, art, work, failure, and death. Wow. That sounds great. I hope so. (laughs) Well, thanks for being on Between the Covers today, Sarah. Thank you, David. We're talking today to Sarah Manguso about her latest book from Grey Wolf Press, Ongoingness, The End of a Diary. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host.